Hello there, my name is Emma Zimmerman and I am the host of the Social Sport Podcast, also on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. On my show, I chat with endurance athletes of all types who are committed to fostering social change. These athletes can be climate change activists, mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. What brings all of these athletes together is their commitment to connecting sport and activism in their lives. If you listen to Runners of NYC, you'll recognize Coffee and Chris Chavez as past guests on the show. Since Chris heads the Sidious Mag Podcast Network, he felt it would be great to amplify my recent conversation with Ben Chan to the New York City running community, or for whoever listens from wherever on this podcast feed. What you're about to hear is an episode of Social Sport that was released on November 23rd. If you enjoy the episode, feel free to subscribe to Social Sport, where we have more talks like this one. Social Sport is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to shows. You can also follow us on Instagram at Social Sport Pod. Hope you guys enjoy this special crossover of Social Sport on Runners of NYC. Ultra runner and activist Ben Chan joins me today. He is well known in the New York running community for his racing attire, which is a leopard print pair of short shorts and a cowboy hat. But in recent times, Ben has also become well known for his activism. Today, we focus on Ben's exchanges with a certain high profile race director who banned Black Lives Matter from his events. It can be difficult to talk negatively about people in the running community who have large followings and who have created events that are, frankly, important to the running community. But I also think that we need to hold everyone accountable for their words and for the communities that they create in sports and beyond. I believe that very deeply. And this episode was recorded about a week ago, and since that time, more exchanges have unfolded. The race director actually shared his racist speech very openly on a podcast, so Ben's sentiments shared in this episode are perhaps even more important. Hey, Ben, welcome to Social Sport. Thanks for having me, Emma. I'm really excited to have you on. I mean, just everything you've been doing, you've been such an outspoken voice for justice in the running community. And I want my listeners to understand a little bit more about who you are. So could you tell me who you are and what you're passionate about and where you are right now? (laughs) Sure. So my name is Ben Chan, and I am the grandson of refugees both of uh, my grandparents um, on, on my mom's and my father's side uh, left China at uh, different points. Uh, my mother's parents left China in the 30s, right before the Japanese invade during World War II. And on my father's side of the family, his, um, his father um, tried to flee to Taiwan in 1949 when the communists took over China. They never heard from uh, my grandfather ever again. My um, grandmother and my dad ended up uh, immigrating to Hong Kong and then to the U.S. Uh, so both of my parents are immigrants. When my mother's family left China during World War II, they got on a boat and they ended up in Madagascar, where my mom was born and raised. Uh, so my mother is ethnically Chinese, but she was raised uh, in that island that's off of the east coast of Africa. 
so that's that's a bit about my background. I'm the husband of Siobhan Stewart. I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, and then recently, uh, uh, up until recently, we lived in New York City. And three months ago, we moved to Keene, New Hampshire, where we, uh, where we are now, because uh, my wife is a professor at Antioch University. That is quite the history that you just shared. Wow. And also, I was going to say, I'm in your neck of the woods right now. I'm in Brooklyn, and I know that you're originally from New York. How has it been in Keene? Different than New York. I mean, as I bet, teacher. yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine, I mean, uh, I was just on a, a call last night with with other runners that are doing uh, diversity and inclusion work in uh, in the New York City running community, and and I always say to them, you know, this this is the only time when I'm on the, in the Zoom that I see black and Asian runner. <laughs> like, wow. New Hampshire is 95% uh, white and and, this, and the city of Keene is also. Uh, so it's 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 a lot different and we're getting used to, to the pace of, of life here. And it's nice not having to, uh, to wait for the subway or deal with public transportation anymore because uh, we can just walk everywhere. Um, so, but we're getting used to it. Yeah, although I feel like most people in New York aren't dealing with public transportation anymore either because of the That's pandemic, true. but but fair. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, you are known in the New York running community. I think a lot of people know you for your race attire. You always wear these bright or leopard print short shorts and a cowboy hat. Do you plan to bring that get up to New Hampshire races or is that solely a New York thing? You know, I, I don't even know yet. Uh, I, I don't even know when they're going to be doing in-person races in New Hampshire, although I think they just did the, uh, a marathon uh, in Manchester last weekend. Uh, but there's like no New York Roadrunners uh, equivalent for Keene. You know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because I was thinking about this the other day uh, and it was pointed out to me um, by somebody in Keene. Uh, so in New York, yes, you're right. I'm known for the guy that runs in that leopard print speedo and the cowboy hat. But in Keene, um, you know, I've been here for three months. And when I got here, I, I, I walk around town in a, in, uh, a singlet that says Black Lives Matter. Um, we can talk about the origin of that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Keene, I'm the guy that wears the Black Lives Matter singlet. So <laughs> that's what I'm known for here uh, okay. as opposed to over there. Well, that's that's super interesting because I know that I mean, even your outfit, I've heard you talk about it before. I think it was on the Alley on the Run show. I heard you talk more about the the origin of that outfit. And it seems like it is kind of centered around justice too. I heard you talking about how, what it means in the case of discounting stereotypes about Asian Americans. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that and what that means to you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for asking about that. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, one of the things, and I, I, I guess... Full disclosure, I've been an Asian American long before I was a runner. Uh, so I only took up running uh, around the age of 30 years old. But before that, uh, growing up in the U.S. as, a, as an American-born Chinese person, uh, you, you get to know a lot of stereotypes uh, really quickly as a kid because the other kids, the other boys especially, will tell you what the stereotypes are. And you see it reflected in like everywhere in the movies, television shows, magazines, where like Asian men are sort of like presented in a way that like we're emasculated, we're not like we're non-threatening and like we're nerds. That's always something that's been foisted upon me, I feel. And I think one subtle or actually I guess it's not is not so subtle way of I guess uh, rejecting the stereotype is yeah, my running outfits. Like so I choose not to blend in. I choose to like show off my body and stand out. I know that like 
you know, I kind of have a dad bod. So, uh, but I'm not ashamed of it, you know, because I mean, it's, it's part of running. Your runners come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, and it, I think what surprises a lot of people, well, at the beginning, when I started doing it, was people were like, they would see the outfit. And I think they would also notice that like, that's, that's an Asian guy. Like, wow, like that's, that's weird. Because <laughs> like, mm. that's not something I think that a lot of people encounter, like even in New York City, in a city that's so diverse and has so many like millions of people, um, so that's just kind of me just saying, you know, this is who I am and, and I'm, I'm proud of being who I am and I'm proud of my body. And, and yeah, I'm challenging that, that assumption that people make about Asian American and the stereotypes. That's so cool. I love that. It seems like you're taking ownership of so many things, like who you are, your identity, your body. And that's just so cool. Have you continued to get that reaction of, of, wow, like, you know, what is this? Or have people been kind of have they become used to you and your outfit now? What, how has the reaction changed or not? I, I think that in New York City, definitely. Uh, the more people have seen me, the, the more they come to know me. I mean, I started running there in 2012 after donating uh, one of my kidneys. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, between 2012 and 2020, pe- people got to know me and I became, you know, a, a known member of the running community. Even people that like never knew my name or knew me personally, like they knew, oh, like there's that guy. <laughs> like, and, um, so yeah, I think that the, rea- the reaction has changed. I think like outside, when I go running outside of New York City, yeah, I mean the, the reaction is definitely like, whoa, like what is this? And um, you know, people kind of don't know what to do with me, uh, which is fine. I, I think that's that's fine. I, and I think it's just so important for for not just for me, but for everybody to kind of define themselves because um, I found that if you don't, um, you end up people end up putting you into places. Um, and I think that that's the experience of, of being a part of a, a minority group, whether it's an ethnic minority, whether it's uh, a being uh, a woman, I think even like there are a lot of stereotypes around like what women or how women should look and how they should mm-hmm. carry themselves. And so I just think that it's important for everybody to just acknowledge that the stereotypes exist, but, and then also for people that are members of these groups to kind of, um, to kind of think beyond them and not to be imprisoned by them. Well, I know that you are so focused on being outspoken about oppression and even just looking at your Instagram page, justice seems to be a huge focus of yours. What is the origin of that? Have you always been really focused on exposing injustice? Yeah, I think I have. I mean, I, this is something that's, I guess, not very apparent and nobody believes me when I tell them this, but I'm actually a very introverted person. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm actually a very quiet person. Uh, if, if I had things my way and in, in, in an idea, well, I'd be sitting somewhere just reading a book by myself. Um, so I think the origin of that is, so the first day of elementary school, I'm like the new kid. Uh, and this is in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the new kid. I didn't go to kindergarten or pre-K. Uh, I, I started the first grade and I, I grew up in Greenpoint, which is a Polish neighborhood. Um, and there were a lot of Irish people and Polish, uh, Polish people. And there were a few, a few Latino, Latinx, Latinx people. And that was it. Uh, so I was like one of two, uh, Chinese boys and as boys do, you know, they immediately recognize that, Oh, this, this, this kid is different. And then, you know, the, the way things work, kids always end up picking on the kids that are different. Um, because I think in part, it's a way of belonging, you know, it's a, it's a way of forming camaraderie, like, Oh, you have a common, I guess, target. Um, and that, and that was me. And, um, 
And so for a long time, you know, um, that was the thing that I talk about, that I talked about with people when I talk about like my experience. So my first experience encountering racism, but the flip side of that, and this is something that I've only come to recognize uh, recently, is that also on the first day of school, uh, the school administrators put me in the ESL class. They didn't test me and they didn't talk to me. They just looked at me, saw my face, and they put me in the ESL class, even though English was the language my mother and I were speaking at home at that time. She was learning English and she was putting herself through school to get a bookkeeping degree. So we watch English television shows. We converse in English at home. I was writing in English and none of that mattered to them. So these administrators just looked at me. They put me in the ESL class and I didn't really notice until until recess. And because at recess, while the other kids are going and playing outside in the schoolyard, the ESL kids are going to the library and taking English classes. And like, that really pissed me off that I wasn't allowed to go. I bet. And um, so I cursed out the teacher. And that's like when the light bulb, like, oh, like this kid, uh, <laughs> kid knows English. <laughs> and so, and so I think that was, so, and as a kid, you know, I didn't really, I didn't think of it in this way, but I sort of like, that was a signal to me that if I, that if I didn't speak up for myself, people were just going to like, put me in places, that they were just going to make assumptions about me. And so I think that was when I was, when I became fascinated about like the way people perceive me mm-hmm. and um, what will happen if I don't say anything, if I just let people, um, if I just let people guide me into where they think I should be. It's so cool that you bring up that you're an introvert because it is surprising. I mean, even if you follow you on social media, I think the assumption would be this is a very outspoken person, someone who's not afraid to, um, you know, have confrontations, to speak their mind. And it kind of reminds me of the running community in a lot of ways, because I think, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, a lot of runners are introverts in my experience, but I think running allows us to kind of fake it, right? Like it gives us this false Oh, yeah. I don't even know Absolutely. confidence, community. Yeah. And so well, it, it yeah, tracks. Running, running is, uh, I always talk about running as a form of expression. And I don't, and I know that's not the way a lot of people think about it, but I, I actually do think that it is a form of expression. The way you run, the way you dress when you run, the way you carry yourself when you run, like that is a form of expression. So yeah, I would agree. I think there are a lot of people in the running community that like this is the way that they are expressing themselves. Totally. Yeah. So while we're talking a little bit about justice and being outspoken, I'd love to jump right into recent events. And I know you were recently featured in an Outside Magazine article article entitled, Why Did a Virtual Ultra Ban Black Lives Matter? And this article outlined a series of exchanges you had with a pretty famous race director, Gary Cantrell, also known as Laz or Lazarus Lake. First of all, who is Gary Cantrell, why is he so important in the ultra community? Yeah, he is. Uh, Lazarus Lake is the guy who founded the Barclays Marathon. And this is the the infamous uh, hardest hardest race in the world that they've made uh, several documentaries about. Uh, one of which is on Netflix. And I think that was a gateway into like people realizing like, oh, this is, this is a thing. Uh, and Laz created the, the, I think the first time Barclays was run was in like the mid 80s, 86 or 87, I think was. And so anyway, um, so there's this, there's this lore around, um, around this race and it attracts runners from 
all over the world, even though it's an invitational race, only people that are invited. And you got to be one of like the best of the best. You got to be the top of the top in terms of ultra marathoners. And so every year, um, even though it takes place like in this, in the woods in Tennessee, in a place where like, that doesn't draw a lot of tourists, like people from around the world tune in to like watch this race. And the other race that he's known for is um, that he invented this race format. It's called the the Backyard Ultra, which is uh, deceptively simple. Every runner is supposed to run 4.167 miles uh, within an hour. And you keep on doing it over and over again until there's only one runner left and that runner wins the race. So you don't, you have no idea how long you're going to be running. You have no idea what the distance is going to be. Uh, so those are the kind of races that he's, um, that he's created. And so earlier this year, um, he had to cancel one of his uh, ultra marathons, which is across the state of Tennessee, his home state, um, that's usually run in person. Um, it's called the Vol State and it's a little bit more than a thousand kilometers. Uh, so like uh, 800 plus miles. And he decided to turn it into a virtual race. And when Laz did that, 19,000 runners from around the world signed up to run that race, uh, which was incredible. Um, Cause he, I think only thought a few hundred people would take up the challenge. Uh, and you had like between May and the end of August in order to complete your, um, your thousand K but to get 19,000 people to sign up for um, to sign up for the race. And I, there was very little in the way of advertising. It was just like, he announced, I'm going to do this race. And 19,000 people from around the world signed up to do this. And he created a Facebook community where there were 13,000 people. Uh, and so- I mean, so I, and this guy is well-known, I think, even outside yeah. the running community. I think from those documentaries. I mean, I'm always surprised when a non-running friend knows about Big, Big's Backyard or knows about- Gary Cantrell, I think, you know, just to highlight the point that he has a, a big presence. Yeah, he is a he is a well-respected, he's a revered figure within the Ulster running community. Even people that have never met him, um, they um, you know, they revere him. And uh he's got a he's got a large following. And and I'm I'm one of those people, I'm a fan. I tune into uh Barclays and the the backyard ultra. Uh, so I signed up to run the race in uh in April and then in May I started running along with everybody else. Um, and I finished, I finished at the end of July. So a month early, um, than the deadline. Um, and like, like every single runner does when you finish a race, right. You take a picture and you, and you write a race recap, you know, like this is what happened to me during, during my race. So, so if you're running a thousand K and you take like three months to do it, like you have a lot to write about. Um, totally. So, so I wrote about a lot of things. And one of the things that um, I wrote about, the, so the last day that I ran, and I ran all of my miles in New York City, in Queens, mm -hmm. usually starting at two or three in the morning, um, just because, you know, during the pandemic, I didn't want to be around people. And this was like the best time for me to, to be able to do a lot of running and not be around people. And the last, on the last night that I was running, so like around three o'clock in the morning, I'm on Queens Boulevard, I'm running there's a driver who's making a left turn and I, I stop so that driver can finish the turn before I cross the street. And as I'm crossing the street, the driver rolls down his window and he yells, fucking faggot, like right at me. So I stop and you know, the, the New York, the Brooklyn side, he like looks at him and starts walking. I start walking towards the car and the guy just like drove away really quickly. So that, that was part of my race recap. I, I, I wasn't not going to talk about that. And and this wasn't the only time that something like that happened to me. Earlier, 
in, in earlier, so like in May and in June, when people were like concerned about the pandemic, when they were like, when there was a lot of a- a- anti-Asian racism, the slur mm-hmm. the yelled at me were, were chink and really like terrible racist things. Um, so that was like two, uh, two or three sentences in my recap. And, the, and I said in my recap, I'm bringing, I write about this because I know that there are people that have, there are runners that have it worse. And when I say that, I'm talking about black runners. Um, I'm, talk, I'm talking about people like my wife who, when, whenever she went out to do her 5K in the morning in Queens, our neighbors, uh, most of which were Asian, Chinese, they would like look at her and like eye her suspiciously and they would like watch her um, in a way that they wouldn't look at me. And so that's what I was referring to when I say that people had it worse. And I know you were also in that race recap, you posted a photo, you were also wearing a Black Lives Matter singlet. Did you run the entire event in that or did you run any of the event in that Black Lives Matter singlet as well? No, I, I I did like the last that 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 singlet came in like the last day that I that I was running, so that was the I wore that the last day that I ran, and that's why that was the picture that I posted. Um, and the thing is, it's 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 funny because like that's the only place in my race recap that the words Black Lives Matter appear in that picture on my singlet. I didn't say the words Black Lives Matter anywhere in my race recap. In fact, the the bulk of my recap was talking about audiobooks and like the favorite ones that like I start, I was listening to that got me through those months of getting up at three o'clock in the morning and running. And so I, I thought that I was relatively benign. Like, this is what happened to me. This is my experience. Here's a picture. And, you know, thank you, Laz. And thank you for everybody. Thank you to everybody else. Right. I put up the post at like 930 at night. I wake up the next morning um, and the post is gone. It's been deleted. (laughs) And so I'm like, this is weird. Like, why would it be deleted? And I get a message from Laz saying, "Um, I agree with you, cause a thousand percent but this is not the place for political posts. Um, this was a private message, correct? Yes, this was a direct message to me, which I thought was interesting uh, because, and, and, and not surprising, uh, it was interesting because of the way that it was, that it framed my shirt or the words Black Lives Matter as political um, and who was framing it that way. Um, and it's not the first time a white person has said, you know, like this is, because I think that like, whenever I hear that 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 word politics, right? Uh, whenever white people use it to me, they use it in a way where they're, they, they're not really talking about politics. It's really code for this makes, this makes me and other white people uncomfortable. And I think that's what, that's what he was saying to me. Like, this makes us uncomfortable. And then he also, when I, when I engaged him, um, and this is through like, uh, through mes- direct messages, he said, well, you know, I'm only one, I'm, uh, I only have a few people monitoring this community. I can't control the people that will come in and like leave nasty comments. And I felt, well, you can kick those people out of your race. Like you could say, yeah. like, or the other thing you could do, you could just turn off the comments and not let people comment. Um, and uh, so we had a difference of opinion in the way he handled it. And I know that, I mean, that exchange, it kind of came back or it returned in some way. I know on September 1st, there was another virtual event, a relay run by Laz, and your team wanted to use the name Black Lives Matter. What was Laz's response to that? Right. So after after that happened and, and I engaged him and I, I publicly talked about, you know, that like that my post was taken. And I also, you know, was not I was well, it wasn't just talking about me. There were other people that were 
participating in the race across Tennessee whose posts were also taken down. And for the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that they said the words Black Lives Matter. It was like they took a picture and like somewhere in the picture, there was like the words Black Lives Matter. And like that would incense. And they were all take those were all taken down. Anything with any mention of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And eventually what Laz did was he put a public post in the community saying, you know, this is, you know, whenever I take down a post, people will say it's not political. Well, I disagree. And this is the way I feel. And the post was, I think, the most liked post in the community and received something like like a thousand or a thousand three hundred comments, mostly from white runners thanking Laz. And it was the message was always the same, like, thank you for creating this refuge. And it was so to me, it was just so like it begs the question, what are you what are you seeking refuge from? Like Mm -hmm. if just seeing the words Black Lives Matter, right? Nobody's trying to engage you in discussion. Nobody's trying to like tell you what to believe or tell you how to feel. You're just seeing the words, these three words, Black Lives Matter. And like, you you're, you feel threatened and that like, that like makes you feel not safe. Why, I think that like, I think you have to ask yourself like, why is that? And so anyway, I gave Laz the benefit of the doubt. I said, okay, I, I, I believe him when he says that he agrees with me, at that, uh, my cause a thousand percent. So I'm going to sign up for his next virtual race, which is a race around the world. You have 10 teammates and you're running like 30,000 miles uh, collectively. So we decided that our team name was going to be Black Lives Matter. And we signed up for the race almost as soon as he announced that it was happening. And then, so like a month before September 1st, when the race starts. So we were in this community for the race around the world for 30 days, right? No problems. Like nobody said anything to us. And uh, for the race, we posted our logo. Like this is our logo and this is our team name, Black Lives Matter. (laughs) Nobody thought that that was like controversial. In fact, there were people that were like, oh, that's great. I'm glad that you're here, right? Laz, uh, this is August 30th, two days before the beginning of the race, he sees our logo and he immediately deletes my, my, my comment to the, to the post. And he sent each of us, all 10 of us, an email saying, we're not going to have a team named Black Lives Matter in, in my event. And so now he's not responding to angry commenters. He's not responding to anybody in the community. Now he's imposing his own politics on us. And saying that like we can't be in the, we can't be in this race, and he told he gave us an ultimatum. He said, "We you, if you don't change your name, I'm going to remove you from the race, and I'll give you a refund." And we met as a team, and we decided collectively that we're not going to change our team name. And, and we posted a public statement um, that we sent to him about why we weren't going to change our team name, and he ended up removing us from his race. Has Laz given any other rationale? You keep bringing up how he talks about politics. I don't want to bring quote unquote politics into the race, which, you know, we all know, I think is code for, I don't want to be made uncomfortable as a white person, but regardless, has he said anything else or has it just really been that blanket statement on politics? Um, it's, it's pretty much been that. And I will say that, like, after after this happened in September, um, it, was, it was interesting to me because, like, again, 19,000 runners were participating in the race across Tennessee, right? So I know that there were people there that were, like, that are covered the running industry as journalists and, like, podcasters, right? And so what puzzled me was the silence around it, right? Nobody, like, reached out to me and was like, hey, I heard this happen to you. Let, let, let me talk to you and, and let, let's let's uh, come on my podcast and let's talk about it. Right. Because you know, there are like a million running podcasts out there. Like and 
people that are running that are writing for Runner's World, like outside magazine, like what else is happening during the pandemic about running? What what else is there to write about, right? But there was silence. Nobody, and I just, you know, so I went on my own social media and I started like blasting people and calling people out, like so, so white people that are that are writers and that are podcasters, like why aren't you writing about this? Why aren't you talking about this? Even if you're, I'm not part of the conversation, like, why aren't you saying anything about this? Even the ones that consider yourselves allies, like, what are, what, why, why the silence, right? And then finally, that's like when some people start reaching out to me, like Ali and saying, yeah, you know what, we should be talking about this. And there was another journalist from Wonders World that reached out to me, and she, uh, she's Latinx, and she said, and she, she told me that she actually had to like really push for her editors in Runners World to cover this wow. story. To me, that's like insane. Like you're talking about an event where there's 19,000 runners. Like what else is happening in running? Um, so why why the discomfort? And I think I think uh, part of the answer is that like white people don't know how to talk about race. They don't know how to write about race, and because it's just never. It's not something. It's not a practice. It's not something a skill that they've learned, right? So when you're confronted with situations like this, all of a sudden you're just you're uncomfortable. You don't know how to cover it. And so getting back to your question, like when people start talking to me, they also reach out to Laz. And I think that's that's fine. That's fair. Like get both sides of the story. And in one of uh, one publication in particular, uh, Get Outside Magazine, which is Canadian running magazine, they interviewed Laz. And he actually said he compared us being in his race, having the team named Black Lives Matter with somebody like he said, that's like somebody showing up to one of my uh, in-person races and trying to start a fist fight. And I, and I thought that was so offensive. Like, Jeez. So you think that like just having, just, just showing the words Black Lives Matter, that's like starting a fist fight. Like I, that's insane to me. That's like, and he, was, and he also said, and this is also, this also offended me. He also said, well, you know, I would treat somebody who, 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 dis, who tried to sign up with a team, they make America great again, the same way. And to me, making that comparison, like Black Lives Matter and, and make America great again, are the same thing. Like I, I, I completely reject that. And that's completely offensive because like, I just want to say, like, this is where I think the, the disagreement is. Laz, like, I'm not telling Laz that he needs to, like, kick people out of his race. I'm not telling Laz, like, we're, we're not saying to Laz, we're not going to participate in your race unless you're anti-racist. We're just saying to Laz, like, this is our team name. We're Black Lives Matter. I know that there are people that are uncomfortable with Black Lives Matter in this race, and that's fine. I'm willing to share a space with them. I'm willing to share a space with people who are vir- virulently racist like because I, I don't have a choice like when I go running outside mm. yell whatever they yell at me right I don't have the privilege to tell somebody that they're not that they can't be in whatever space right well Laz does right and that's the difference right because 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 make America great again is about keeping people out it's about like you know you can't be here and we're in charge right whereas like Black Lives Matter is like well we're here and and we're here we're here to be in your space and we're just here that's it we matter yeah, it's it's so wild. I mean, to me, like, make America great again is violence. <laughs> that signifies violence. Black Lives Matter signifies anti-violence. So it's just, like, how do you equate the two? But, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it goes so into, like, what America is and something that I sometimes can't, not sometimes, I can't even wrap my head around. But you keep bringing up this term, uncomfortable, and how white people in the trail community don't want to feel uncomfortable. And it's made me curious about just the trail community in general 
And prior to this whole exchange of Laz, have you seen complacency in the trail community with regards to racism and injustice? What has that looked like in the past? Yeah, I think I think that that trail running and ultra and ultra running are particularly they're subsets of the running the larger running community, and I think that those particular subsets are are very white, and there are a host of reasons why that is. I think that in order to be in order to run a, on a trail, you have to have transportation to get there. You have to have opportunities to get to the to get there a lot of times when you're running in trail races uh, or training on trails you're not it's not the same as running in the city where even if you're running by yourself you're passing people in the street you're passing police officers people see you and you feel a bit you feel that sense of safety because you know that like people are seeing you when you're running on trail you could be in the woods by yourself uh not see anybody the whole time and so there's that sense of like am i safe here and that's a question i think um and that's a real question i think that a lot of minorities face and, and, and women like that's that's not a question that like that white men usually have to ask themselves when they decide mm-hmm. to go anywhere you know like am I safe you know I mean there might be like neighborhoods that they avoid but like they know if something happens I can call the police or you know or if something happens and I and I and I ask for help like some people will help me whereas like if you're uh, a black if you're a black man if if you're if somebody sees you running they automatically assume they might automatically assume that you're the one that's like the danger you're the one that's committed something and so yeah i think that there are, that 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 those particular communities the, the ultra marathon and the trail communities are particularly white and I, and when people ask me like is running racist uh my response has always been like, well, I feel that running communities are a reflection of American communities. And if we know that like American communities have been shaped by like racist, racist um, real estate laws, racist criminal justice system, racist police officers, racist segregated schools. So if, if American communities, right, are a product of the racism of the white supremacy that has existed in the United States for such a long time, and the running communities are a reflection of those communities, how can, how can there not be racism in running, right? So the, to, yeah. to me, the question isn't like, isn't if it's there, it's how it expresses itself. Um, and so, and so when, I think that when, when people start to understand, right, that like, there's a lot of racism in the United States and it's been, it's been passed down for a long time, right? And if your stance and your response to that is like, well, we're inclusive, um, and I think that in general, like that has been the response from the trail and the ultramarathon community. It's like, oh, we're not like that. We're inclusive. We welcome everybody, right? But so let's dig a little deeper then. What are you doing to welcome people? What are you doing to in order to be inclusive? Like, what are the actions you're taking? And when you ask those questions of the race directors and the club leaders, a lot of times it'll just be like, well, you know, just kind of like shrug and well, well, we, well, black, black people don't run trails. <laughs> why, do, why do you think that is? And what are, you doing, what are you doing to bring those people in? Right. I know that people are going out there and they're recruiting white trail runners and white ultra marathoners. Right. For me, I got into ultra running and trail running because I had an, a friend who was a trail runner and an ultra runner who said, hey, come and do this, like come come and try this. But if you're in communities where you don't have access to those kinds of people and those kinds of opportunities, how are you supposed to like get into ultra running and, and trail running? It's always shocking how so many people in America and white people, I should specify, can wrap their minds around the fact that racism is a structure that we exist 
under and that bleeds into everything. It's not just a personal action of inclusion. It is this underlying structure that has such a deep history. So of course that's going to bleed into the trail community. And of course it's going to bleed into the running community. So thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. And I think that's, that's why the story about my first day of school is so important, right? Because like when I tell the story, right, people recognize immediately off the bat that the bullying is wrong, that the, the racist being called racist names by the kids is wrong, right? But it's the other thing, right? The systemic racism, right? When like they put me in the ASL class without testing, without saying anything. That was done by like white people, by people who like don't consider themselves racist, by people who thought that they were doing what was best for me, right? By people who were probably who would probably say, well, we're not racist, we're inclusive. Like, look, we're, we're helping this, we're helping this Chinese kid, right? Like that, I think, is, is, it, that is how racism presents itself um, and anti-Blackness presents itself in the running community. It's that attitude um, that like, well, we're in charge and, we, and, and we're doing what's best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is, can be very, very hurtful. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine Going back to Laz, and because I know that all of these events continue in October, one of his most famous events, Big's Backyard, took place. And I mean, there are 14 white runners, pretty high caliber runners representing Team USA who showed up to this event created by Laz. And I think you said it best in your Instagram post. You said Laz has created a refuge for white people. And I know you've used that term refuge in our conversation before. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into that. What exactly do you mean by a refuge for white people? Yeah, so, and my team pointed this out to him in our statement about why we weren't going to change our team name. Uh, we felt that by doing, by removing us from his events, he, Laz was literally drawing a line in the sand. He's saying Black Lives Matter is not allowed here. When I was part of the, the community, um, that was running across Tennessee, right? People would talk about very personal things. Like in their, in their posts, they would talk about like uh, the state of their marriages. Some people were going through divorces. Other people had lost loved ones to COVID, right? And the, the, the things that ultramarathoners talk about too, right? You're mis- you, you lost a toenail, <laughs> like, mm, yeah. um, all, you know, chafing, uh, all, all kinds of things, right? But you're drawing a line or Laz is drawing a line and saying, well, you can't talk about racism. You can't talk about the things that you're, that you as a black runner, as an Asian runner, as a Latinx runner, and even as a woman, like you can't talk about those things here. That's not allowed. So you have to contort yourself in order to fit in with us or otherwise you don't belong here. And I think that's a very, very harmful thing to do because it sets a precedent. It, and because of the status that Laz has, uh, because he's revered, right? He's giving permission for other race directors to act the same way. And there are probably a lot of race directors that are, but now they can point to somebody and they can say, well, I stand with Laz. I agree with Laz. And, you know, Laz can do no wrong. And I think that that's... I think that's so harmful. And so when he goes ahead and does his um, back his uh, backyard championship in October, and he has and he invites 14, 14 runners to represent the United States of America because there were all the races that were happening around the world. So it was like America versus all these other countries, right? All the 14 runners are white runners, right? Mm-hmm. And and I pointed this out on social media the same weekend that he was doing that they're running in Laz's backyard, right? Um, 
Bell Buckle, Tennessee. That's where the race was taking place. Less than 11 miles away, um, there were protests going on because um, the town, the townspeople were dealing with Ku Klux Klan literature that was being spread around town, right? So you have this, you have these, these people in the town, right, that are dealing with racism, that are taking a stand against racism, right? Uh, and then less than less than 11 miles away, you have a group of 14 runners, white runners, supposedly representing all of America, Team USA, right? Not a single word is said about about what's happening less than mm-hmm. 11 miles away. And then, so when when people go and, and people from around the world tune in to watch this race, right? And one of the things that Last talks about, oh, this is so amazing. This is community, it's drawing people from around the world, right? But you're not even willing to talk about what's happening 11 miles away in your own state, in your own town, in your own county. You know, it, I just think that there's a dissonance between between their idea of what community is and, and what other people's ideas of communities. They have a very narrow definition, I think, and that's why it's a refuge, right? So you're saying like, if a white person wants to come and be here and be safe and not have to think about um, discrimination and not have to and not have to see the words Black Lives Matter, they have a home right here in Lazarus event. And I think that idea of refuge, it just expands to almost every place in America. I mean, there's so many examples beyond the running community of ways in which we create refuges for white people. And I think that you highlighting that in the trail running community is really just a greater example of how that exists in public schools by what we're teaching, how it exists in, I mean, just so many different spheres of society. So that refuge conversation is super important for everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's also, I don't believe them when people are like, oh, thank you so much for creating this refuge. To me, it's like, oh, so then I guess like when you're not running, right, you're doing all this anti-racist work, you're doing all these like, you're, you're being an ally, right? So like, so if I go and like, I, I go to your social media, I'm going to go and I'm going to go see all these incredible things that you're doing as an ally, right? All these incredible things that you're doing on behalf of diversity and conclusion, right? And it's, it's, it's <laughs> Right. So maybe you people, saw maybe a black square and that's all. Right. But so 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 what's happening, right, is essentially like these people are like saying, well, I don't want to think about Black Lives Matter in my own personal life. I don't want to. It bothers me when I see it in the news. I'm not going to talk to black people. I don't want to see any Latinx people. And it's great. And thank you, Laz, for also creating this space where I don't have to deal with it in running. And, and so mm-hmm extension of their of their personal life it's not it's not a different place right it's just an extension of stuff that they're already doing right yeah i want to talk more about this kind of public response because you say that laz set a precedent now other race directors can say i stand of laz i agree with what he has said but you also you're featured in this article in Outside, you're in an article in Runner's World, you've been very outspoken on your own social media. What have the responses been like after all these events transpired? Have people in the trail community or in the greater running community given you support? Has there been mostly nasty comments against you? What has that been like? Um, I think there's been a lot of both, I think. Um, and I can't say if there's been more, more one than the other. Uh, somebody, there, there's, um, there's a, I guess, a website or a listserv where um, race directors of ultra marathons and cheryl uh, races, they, they have their own private community. And somebody that's a member of it told me like, yeah, like when those articles came out, like 
people are talking about you, people are talking about Laz. And because Laz was part of that community, he was able to dominate the conversation. And it seemed like that there were a lot of people that agreed with that. And, and you know, it was like taking a step back and looking at that community of race directors, right? It's, it's mostly old white men, right? So like, of course, you know, like that's who they're comfortable with. They, they don't know me. I'm the outsider. I'm the one who's like invading, uh, running and, and trying to like take something away from them, um, whatever, whatever that is, I guess. Um, but I also have gotten support. Um, there were smaller race, uh, race directors of smaller events that are reaching out to me. For example, these two women that are, I think, out in, um, on the West Coast. I think it, they might be in, uh, in Washington State. Um, they uh, recently formed their own uh, race um, company called Banshee Running. And, and so they um, reached out to me and said, you know, like, we, we, we heard about what's happening and, and we agree with you. Uh, and then there were several race directors. Um, another one is um, Jason, the, the race director for Freddy, for Yeti Trail Runners. Um, he's, oh, cool. he's local in his support. Um, but the the biggest response I got was from individual runners. Um, I got a lot of messages from like Asian and Asian American runners um, that were telling me that like, yeah, you know, um, I'm glad that you're speaking up because I'm part of this uh, running club or I'm part of this running community. I've always felt that like, that I had to like be silent, that I had to accept things, that I had to accept that things were this way. It's, it's good that I can, um, that I can be that for somebody. And at the same time, it's sad, you know, because like to, to understand that there are people that have, that are living through this um, and, w- and wanting to have these conversations and wanting to see things change, people that feel like they're left out or that they have to contort themselves in a certain way in order to be accepted. Um, that's, that's really sad to me. And that, and that's why I'm, I won't shut up about this because I think it's something that needs to be addressed. Well, you're going into these race directors that gave you some sign of support and, and these individual people. And the thing is, there's so many race directors and you're naming, you know, individual names, individual groups. And there are so many companies involved in the running industry. There are so many media outlets. And the thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around is all of these companies, all of these media outlets release statements on Black Lives Matter, right? So how do you conceptualize that, that they're not actually supporting real tangible work that's being done to support Black lives versus making these statements on Black Lives Matter? Well, the simplest way to put it is um, white people buy running shoes too. (laughs) Like white people run races too. They don't want to offend their white customer base, I think is what it comes down to. And that's why I think that very few elite ultramarathoners actually actually spoke up and said anything. I know that they saw that was going on. I know that they heard what was going on, but they it was easy, it's easier for them not to say anything because what they're risking, right, is if they say something that their fans don't agree with, like all of a sudden they're gonna, you know, they might lose a sponsorship, right? They might have they might have uh, less opportunities. And I, I sympathize with that, right? Like this is their living. Like this is this this is what puts food on the table for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you know, you also have people like like Camille Heron, who you know, who reposted something that I said about Laz's about the backyard ultra, and said, you know, I'm glad that Ben is saying this. Um, so that's that's heartening to see that there are some people that are like, you know, I'm I'm going to talk about this, um, whatever the consequences are. And I don't want it. I don't want it to seem like I'm brushing aside people's concerns, like that I'm making that I'm making this small. I understand, like, there's a lot of fear around this. I understand that, like, if you say something, you're making yourself a target. Like, you're putting a target on yourself, right? But then looking at, try to look at it from my point of view, like, 
I'm already a target, right? I'm already getting these responses from people. When I go running outside, like I get people yelling at me. If, if I'm online and I say something that's controversial in a shared space, people will respond negatively towards me. Like I, I have to live with this already. And it's not just me. It's other um, BIPOC runners and allies that are already speaking out and trying to do the work, right? So really when people are saying that they're being neutral or I don't talk about politics, what they're saying is like, I support the status quo. And it's, and it's easier to support the status quo um, because it, does, it means that you don't have to acknowledge what you're doing personally. And I think it's the other part of it too. It's very painful to take a step back and to say, oh, you know, I had a part in this too. It, it needs to happen. Like it just needs to happen. Um, I think a lot about my nephew on my wife's side of the family. Um, he just started college this year. Um, he's a freshman. And um, when we talk, he's, you know, he says, you know, I, I want to run in a marathon with you, Uncle Ben. And like, yeah, like, cool. Like I, that's, that's awesome. Like I, I would love to run a marathon with you. And then um, when I think about him doing the training runs, right. Cause he's a college student who works. When I think about him like training at night, um, that scares the crap out of me. Right. As a man running at night, all the things that could happen to him, like, and that's, and that's why for me, there's this sense of urgency. Cause I understand that like, if we're not having these conversations, if we're not doing this work, things aren't going to change for my nephew and for my wife and for other people that, that have, that, you know, just are in these terrible situations. Keeping in mind the fact that there's so much change that needs to be done. So your nephew, so people of color can be safe running in any situation and keeping in mind that race directors are mostly powerful white men and there's this perpetuation of racism in the trail culture, maybe even the running world. What call to action do you have for runners who maybe have been afraid to speak out for whatever reason, but are, you know, want to make a more inclusive culture? What would you say? Yeah, uh, so this this is an interesting subject. And sometimes I have a nice response to it and sometimes I have a not so nice response to it. So mm-hmm. You can not- give me both. You can, yeah. no, no filter, whatever you want to say. So... This, this, this work of, um, of, of creating more diverse running uh, and inclusive running communities and running spaces, right? The work cannot just fall on the shoulders of BIPOC runners. Like it just can't be me and my black and Latinx and women friends doing all the work. Like that's, that's terrible, that's wrong because we're not the ones that created this. Like we're not the ones that are propping this up, right? So it's sometimes when people ask me, oh, I don't know what to do. What should I do? It's, I, I take offense to that because look, like I know we're, we're, we're all runners, right? I know that like you are reading all these articles about like shoes, right? And about like the technology that, that Nike is putting in their shoes and like whatever technology that Hoka and all these other companies are putting in their shoes. I know that when you sign up, before you sign up to run a race, right? You're doing all this research and looking up the other races and looking up the elevation profiles and like putting a training calendar to get it, right? You're putting in all this effort into like learning about running, into growing as a runner, right? How much of, how much of that energy, like how much of that effort are you also putting into being an ally to doing the work of being anti-racist, right? Mm-hmm. And and and, and so I don't know what the answer is for, for every single person, right? But I, I feel like, well, you already know what you need to do. You already know how to do the research. You already know how to find resources. Why can't you apply that to doing anti-racism work? And um, and 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 so and, and so that's where I think. Uh, 
I think people might get offended because I'm calling them out personally. I'm, I'm saying, you know, uh, I, I see you doing all this work as, as a runner, uh, all this research, right? Why, why can't you do it when it comes to being anti-racist? Um, and so I, my, my advice to people, my call is you, you got to do the work, right? And you have to do the work, not just in a way where you can post on Instagram and post on Facebook and where you can like, you're not doing the work so that you can swear up and down to me or you can convince me that you're an ally, right? Like, like that doesn't do anything, right? If that's what you're putting your energy towards, like to convince people that you're not racist, right? Like that's, that's not the point of this work, right? So you're not really, like, who are you helping? Who, who are you working in service of, right? And it has to be normal, right? And this is, and this is where I think the culture of running, the culture of all of running has to change. Discussions about diversity and inclusion have to be, have to become a normal part of running. Like, it's not just something that happens after George Floyd. It's not just something that happens after Ahmaud Arbery. It's not just something that happens after Breonna Taylor. Like, this is something that we should have been talking about for a long time now. And the fact that we weren't is wrong. Uh, but now that, that we are talking about it, let's keep talking about it. Like, we need to keep on doing this work. Otherwise, it'll be all for nothing. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're shifting the burden onto BIPOC runners to keep these conversations going. And so one of the things that I've done um, for my own running club, uh, I'm a member of Brooklyn Track Club. Um, and after, um, after Maude Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, right, the club released a public statement saying, you know, we support God as matter, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was silence, but there are people like me and other BIPOC teammates in the club that were like, okay, so we're, we're still waiting for what's next. And eventually we just, we just decided to start our own dialogue. So in the Brooklyn Track Up chat group, we created our own sub chat for Black Lives Matter. And we invited people to come in and to, to talk about things. And I started holding weekly Zoom conferences, totally open to anybody in Brooklyn Track Club to talk about Black Lives Matter, to unpack, to process, to vent. And, and it wasn't, uh, it was, this wasn't, these aren't conversations where I, I come in and I talk to people. This isn't, these aren't spaces where I say, this is what we're gonna talk about today. This is a space where we just all show up and we talk. And because I feel like people need a space where they feel safe expressing however they wanna express themselves and they won't be chided or, or, or thrown out of the room for being wrong, like we encourage mistakes like I've made a lot of mistakes I've said the things things that that were wrong right but that's the only way that people are going to grow right to me it's like it's kind of like dating my parents never talked to me about like dating or or romance or relationships so when I started doing it I was terrible at it like I made so many mistakes (laughs) but I learned from it and I got better at relationships I got better at dating and I think it's the same way with this like if you're not doing it you're not growing you're not growing and if you want to keep on growing it has to become a normal part of running culture and it shouldn't be something that like it gets ghettoized where you just like say we're going to talk about this in this little corner over here so anybody who's interested go over there in that corner and talk about no this has to be Mm -hmm. like that like leadership buys into like and and that's the only way that that these things are going to change yeah, I'm yes, yes, yes. I'm like nodding along to everything as you can see and I love that dating metaphor. I think that it's funny but it's so true. I mean, it is like, you know, something you keep doing and keep practicing and and I think just it's such a powerful call to action just the idea of continued conversation as you did with your track club is we can't just move on after these blanket statements. 
it's just continued conversation, continued work. It really never ends. So thank you for that call to action. And thank you for, I mean, everything you've said today, it's been super powerful. And before we wrap up, I always like to kind of cool things down a little bit with a few fun rapid fire questions. So are you ready for those? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So what is your favorite place to run in the entire world? Uh, man, there's so many places that I want to run that I've never run before. Um, last year, I did a six-day stage race uh, in the Rockies, Trans-Rockies. Uh, that was probably probably my favorite. It was really hard. Uh, made a lot of good friends. And, and, and I think that when you ask me about where's my favorite place to run, it's more about the people that I'm running with huh. than, the, than the place itself. That's not surprising. Knowing you a little bit, that's not surprising. So because you're an ultra runner, I have to ask you the question, what is the strangest thing you've eaten during an ultra? <laughs> the strangest thing that I've eaten during an ultra, because um, I th- actually think that my life outside of ultra running, so like as, as, a, as a world traveler, like I've eaten bugs in Thailand, like fried bugs, like they were selling on a stand, uh, but for an ultra I usually try to stick to to real foods because I think uh, the the gels and like the the chemical stuff like it messes with my stomach a little bit too much. Um, I'll tell you a story about like a funny thing that my a, a weird thing that my friend did. So one time he was doing a trail run by himself and he called me up and he's like, "Ben, I'm out of water." And I'm like, "Okay." Um, he's I'm like, "So are you close to somewhere where you can get water?" He's like, "I am, but I'm really thirsty." And then he like confessed to me, and I won't tell you his name because I don't want to embarrass. He said, "Ben, did he drink his pee?" No, he he said. I, I took my shirt off and I saw that it was soaked in sweat and I, and I <gasps> long and hard about drinking my own sweat. <laughs> I just started laughing. <laughs> so I thought that it was so bizarre and weird um, and endearing. Uh, but luckily he, he, he got back to safety and he's still alive today and still running. I mean, you hear stories about like dr- people drinking their own urine, but like I've never yeah. heard sweat. I mean, that's all disgusting to me, but, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, you got to do what you got to do if it comes down to survival. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So what book do you most recommend or what is your favorite book? I'll give you two, uh, two of my favorite books. Uh, Probably my favorite book that I've read the most is uh, James Baldwin, uh, The Fire Next Time, which is two essays um, that were written in the the late sixties. I think Uh, one of them is the first one is actually a letter to one of his nephews. And the other one is about his experience with nation of Islam. Uh, I think that those, those, it's an incredibly timely book, um, even today uh, in 2020. And the other book that like really, I think, really opened my eyes um, and really taught me that there's another way of looking at world events and news and history from a different point of view is the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, so those are two books that, that I really recommend to people. Awesome. Great suggestions. The last question I ask everyone, why is sport a powerful platform for social change? I think it's because it is a platform that draws so many, that draws so many people. Um, And I'm not one of those people that says like, oh, like sports brings people together. I actually think the opposite. I think like when you look at sports, I think sports is a reflection of actually the the real world. I think sports is, so all the, all the good things that are great about the world and all the terrible things that are are like the the inequality um, that's, that's present in sports too. Um, but I think that people are more willing to pay attention to sports um, 
and think about things uh, because it's in the context of sports, because it's entertaining, right? So like somebody has, uh, somebody can run really fast or somebody can like throw a ball really accurately, but all of a sudden people will listen to what that person has to say about mm-hmm. the social and political topics. Um, and I, you know, I feel it, it, it's a weird thing, but I also think like, it's great because like, where else, right, would you find people, like, white people um, that are rich, right, listening to a guy who, like, grew up dirt poor, um, you know, in, in some in some southern town, right, that never in a million years, you know, would have to access to the kind of audience that they did. So I think it's a powerful platform just because people pay attention to, to it. Yeah, uh, I mean, 100%. I agree with that. You are awesome, Ben. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for all that you do. I mean, I hope it reverberates not only in the running community but outside and I hope that your words continue to to grab people's attention and grab more people's attention and and make them act as well so thank you for everything that you're doing and thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me and and thank you for having this podcast where you're bringing these different voices to the table thanks for listening to this episode of social sport If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you also found a second to subscribe to Social Sport for more conversations like this one. Thanks so much to Chris and Leanne for allowing me to use this space to amplify this important conversation. Feel free to reach out to me at Social Sport Pod on Instagram. Thanks for joining me. Keep sporting and keep resisting. Sometimes.